sex and religion, uncomfortable bedfellows or close companions. Different religions seem to find it hard to agree. For most world religions, it's possible to find contained within each a whole spectrum of conflicting beliefs about sex and desire, from ardent rejections of queer sexuality to wholehearted embraces of LGBTQ plus love. I was told by my bishop at the time that I was a scandal risk to the church. There was always the sense that I was being monitored and watched. I was still told, without any space for contradiction, that homosexuality is a sin. I never went to any theological schooling, so when the adults said, the Quran says, homosexuality is illegal, you believed them. I think it's extremely complicated. I mean, when it comes to being gay and being Jewish, there would be plenty of Orthodox Jews who would say that I simply cannot be an Orthodox Jew. I just happen to simply think that they are wrong. With all this disagreement and tension, we might ultimately be left wondering, what's faith got to do with our sex lives and romantic connections? In this episode, I talk to three incredible people about the major challenges, but also the powerful joys of LGBTQ plus experiences of faith and religion. I'm Holly Morse and welcome to World of Belief. In this podcast, I seek out fascinating personal stories about how people have experienced for themselves some of the big challenges facing us in the world today. Hi, I'm Holly. Nice to meet you. Hi, Holly. How are you? I'm Sarah. I've travelled to North Wales to meet Reverend Sarah Hildreth Osborne, who's a priest in the church in Wales and who set up the first LGBTQIA plus chaplaincy in the UK. Yeah, well, you are here in uh, Llanroost at St. Groose Church, a church that's been here for, well, since 1460. Um, And it's a church that served the community for many, many years. We've recently had a reordering project done, so you'll see when you go in that things are probably a little bit different to what you'd be used to, because we don't have any pews, but... Wow, it's incredibly beautiful. Thank you. It is nice. So, shall we find a place to sit and talk? Absolutely, yeah. So I know that you've got your LGBTQ plus chaplaincy that you've set up. And how did that come about? Too much beer on a sunbed in Malta. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we were actually away on our honeymoon and the church in Wales had recently voted not to change the practice around marriage and the blessing of same-sex couples and things. And I, at first I was just disgruntled as many people were and then I thought, actually, what can we do about it then? We need to create a safe, sacred space where people can just be and not worry about what the vicar or or other people there might say. And I think it's unfortunate that it had to be done, Uh, but it was launched, I think, properly in 2016. Obviously, that's the kind of the stuff that you're doing now. I'm really interested also to know in, in, in how you got to this stage. You know, how's your journey been from oh, it's been fun. becoming a Christian to now setting up and running the LGBT plus chaplaincy? It's been an interesting journey. <laughs> Some of it has taken me to the depths of despair and horribleness and other bits of it, I've really discovered the grace of God and the love of God in people who are kind and loving and caring. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And because when my mother was a child, she'd been made to go three times on a Sunday, I never had to. She wouldn't want to put me through that, which was very kind of her. But I had a grandmother, my mother's mother, who did go on a Sunday. And for various reasons, um, I ended up 
wanting to be confirmed at the age of 13. And I felt the call to priesthood then. But again, the the story is very convoluted and long-winded. I ended up going off to the Pentecostal church for seven years. And even though at home no one had ever said being gay was wrong, my parents couldn't have cared less. In a nice way, they didn't care. But it was in the Pentecostal church, really, that there was that undertone. And I think uh, uh, that kind of expectation that if you're single, you need to find a man if you're a woman and vice versa. I went off to Bible college and it was in my third year uh, ethics uh, class for the first time I heard somebody talk about Leviticus 18 verse 22 and I was told sitting there that gay people were going to hell. It was the first time I ever heard it said. And two things happened. One, I thought actually I am gay because I hadn't really put a word to it. And then I thought I've got a problem here because... You know, this God that I believe in, I spent many, many years after that feeling quite frightened of, if I'm honest. But I'm quite tenacious and I didn't, I don't give up very easily. The process through selection and ordination was difficult because I, I, I couldn't be ordained as um, somebody who was living with somebody of the same sex. And as soon as I was single, I was green light, carry on, easy. And it was easy. I got through it all and uh, went to college. Had a wonderful time in college on the whole. And then I found out where I was going when I was to be ordained. And that was pretty grim. I was told by my bishop at the time that I was a scandal risk to the church and that I was going to be placed with a conservative evangelical training incumbent. And that was really hard. Because there was always the sense that I was being monitored and watched. He didn't just try and trip me up on issues of sexuality. It'd be on what I would wear to take a child's funeral. What was that all about? Do you know what I mean? Um, Nothing to do with it. And I had to have supervision with him once a month and it was like purgatory. And there was always a book on the desk, on the coffee table in the study, about human sexuality and how being gay was a sin. And it was always take that away and read it. And I said, no, I, I, I would refuse to do that. And it, they, were, they were really, really hard days, to be quite honest. There's a whole range of really painful, yeah. traumatic experiences in there. And I guess I'm just left sort of with the question of how did you... And, and I guess, why did you kind of carry on? Well, number one, I don't know where I get it from, but I do laugh a lot in the face of horror. My own horror, I don't mean other people's. And I've always done it because there comes a point when if you don't laugh at it, it's just going to eat you. So you might as well do something to turn it on its head. I mean, I didn't say ever save that much to my mum and dad because I didn't want them to have to hear it, to be honest. But I, I had some, well, I still have really good colleagues in the diocese. The other person in my life I acquired while I was training, I went on placement to Chester Cathedral. While I was there, I met my spiritual director and she's still my spiritual director. And I know for sure if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here as a priest. She's just been that steadfast, faithful expression of the love of God to me 
when other people have shown me the complete opposite and when I felt the complete opposite for myself. And, and you know, at the end of the day, what I do, I do because I believe in it. I believe in a God now who is love and who calls us to celebrate who we are, not hide it away like it's a dirty secret. Because actually, I haven't chosen this for myself. I am who I am by the grace of God, and that includes my sexuality. And so, you know, you're, you're here, there's the LGBTQ plus chaplaincy, same-sex relationships and marriages are now blessed in the church in Wales. Yeah. What changed? Like, how did that come about? I think we've been very, very fortunate. In the last 14 years in the church in Wales, we've seen a big change on, the, on our bench of bishops. They had a different take on everything. I remember going to see um, Bishop Gregory. I didn't know what was on file about me. Again, it was another authority figure that I was actually quite terrified of, really, because he wore a mitre and could wield power and do all sorts of things. And I sat in his, in his living room with him, and I told him the story, my story, and he sat and he cried. And that was one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed, really, because he got it. Because if you've been unseen or unheard for so long, um, it, it's quite a thing when somebody in that kind of position gets it. And ever since then, personally, and for us as a couple as well, uh, Gregory's been incredibly supportive. And he, he was the leading voice at Governing Body in 2021 when it came to bringing forward the proposal for the blessing of same-sex couples. Um, but we've also now got a bishop in Monmouth who's a, a woman in a civil partnership. We've got the Archbishop of Wales, now the Bishop of Bangor, um, who comes from a conservative evangelical stable, if you will, who is very supportive of LGBTQ people. But we've needed those voices and those men and women willing to say, hang on a minute, we haven't got this quite right. And I, I think one of the beautiful things for me has been how generally, there's always the odd one or two, but how generally people have realised that I'm actually not green with three heads and I'm not standing up there on a Sunday preaching the gay gospel which doesn't exist. And that's been a lovely thing for me. But, you know, you ask how it happens and I think it only happens when LGBTQ people find the courage from somewhere to be seen and heard. And I guess, you know, people will look to the Bible and will want to talk about texts that are used to say it's not okay to be gay, to challenge the LGBTQ community. What resources are there biblically that can provide an alternative view to that use of scripture? I think, I'm going to start from here if you don't mind, I, I think the Bible for LGBTQ people has been weaponized. I remember kind of giving up on the Bible because it was a kind of an, a mirror of God. So if God was scary, whatever I was going to read in the pages of what is my holy book actually probably wasn't going to do me very much good. So I would look at the Bible and read it to provide a sermon on a Sunday. I wouldn't read it for me. And, you know, I, I think about that now in terms of my priestly ministry. I feel quite ashamed of that. But it comes from a place where it's been used as a weapon. And, you know, there are seven verses in the whole of the book 
And I think we have to be so very, very, very careful about how we read the Bible. And I don't say that because I want it to say whatever I want it to say. I want it to say what it really says. You know, the word homosexuality, which appears in a lot of modern versions of the Bible, that word didn't come into existence until the Victorians came along. Well, hello. So therefore, Leviticus 18 verse 22, which was probably written about 3,000 years ago, where do those two things match up together? And those seven verses in scripture were written at a very particular time in a very particular language, in a very particular way, by very particular people to very particular groups of people. If you're going to be respectful to the scriptures and you're going to let them live and breathe and speak, you cannot take 3,000-year-old understanding of the way human beings relate to one another and instantly translate it into the 21st century. That is dangerous. So there are people who say that gay people are all wrong. There are people like me who would say that, no, we're not all wrong. We are part of the diverse and beautiful creation that God has has gifted to the world. We're just terrified of it because it's different. And because we don't understand it, we want to hit it and we want to punch it and we want to say, no, we don't want you. We'll spit in your face. We won't accept you. And we'll use the Bible to keep you in your place. Well, that can't be. Because over the whole of the biblical narrative, for me, there is only one thing that matters, and that is, it's a, it's a verse in the New Testament, in John's first letter, can't remember chapter and verse, God is love, three words, that's it. That's the overarching view that I now have of God. Because if we are directed and governed and guided by love, then love covers over a multitude of sins, we're told in the Bible. Well, if I am a sinner, and you don't like that, you're still called to love me. This complex web of faith, scripture and tradition that's woven into different faiths' views on LGBTQ plus people's loves and lives feels challenging and at times confusing. While some, like Sarah, feel that they can negotiate these tensions and continue a life of faith, others choose a different path. Next, Ibtisam Ahmed, Head of Policy and Research at the LGBT Foundation, talks to me about growing up in Bangladesh and how this has impacted his experience of Islam. I think it's really important for me to start by acknowledging I had a relatively privileged upbringing. I grew up in a household that was financially quite stable. So the reason I say that is because for a lot of members of the community in Bangladesh, things are a lot more challenging. So even within that context of privilege, it was very, very strange to grow up in a country where homosexuality is legal. It was very much the idea of homosexuality was wrong. For myself, homosexuality was a very private and intimate affair. It was completely taboo. Gay was the slur. If anything was bad, it was gay in a very toxic sense. So it wasn't really until... I had puberty when I started developing feelings for other people that even entertained the idea that I could be someone slightly different and on any kind of margin or periphery. It wasn't something that we ever discussed in my family. My my parents are, by comparison to most Bangladeshi families, they're relatively speaking quite liberal, quite progressive. 
but we never talked about sexuality. And the assumption in my head was, well, they can't be okay with it because no one else is. I should also say that in the 90s, uh, so when I was growing up, the discrimination against the community was so ingrained and so entrenched that there weren't instances of violence, there weren't instances of active discrimination. But the reason for that was because it was so normal to deny homosexuality that you didn't even need that. Whereas in the 2000s and 2010s in particular, which is around the time I left the country, that's when we started seeing an uptick in violence against the community as well. Thank you for sharing that. You've got so many nuances in there, which are just so brilliant. So can we fast forward? How do you come to be working in the LGBT Foundation? What's your story from that experience growing up to now? I guess if I think of it as a series of milestones, before I moved to the UK, I actually spent two years at an international school in India. And by pure coincidence, this was 2008 and 2009, and that was when the Delhi High Court made a move to decriminalize homosexuality in India. So India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and several other countries across the Commonwealth criminalized homosexuality based on the same colonial law. And the Delhi High Court decriminalized it. As it turns out, it was only a temporary decriminalization. But what it meant at the time was seeing community members in a country with a similar cultural heritage to mine suddenly expressing their sexuality. But I moved shortly after I finished those two years of education, I moved to the UK for my university education. And again, that was where I first encountered an LGBTQ society as a very normal part of student life. It was a completely different world. Um, I was doing my postgraduate education on decolonization. Um, and this was also around the time where India in 2018 fully decriminalized. And I was kind of seeing a lot of those broader ramifications. Um, the LGBTQ plus community in Bangladesh became more activists. And even though I wasn't in the country, I had links to a lot of the groups. I was networking, I was speaking. So I, I felt more aware and I felt more engaged about the, the histories of my community, but also the very modern politics of my community. You mentioned, you know, the ongoing kind of really problematic colonial legacy that is kind of connected to the criminalization of LGBT folks in Bangladesh. And I wonder if you can just explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Sure. So what is now Bangladesh used to be part of British India from 1857 onwards. And in 1860, 1861, the colonial administration introduced a law called Section 377. This law was aimed at criminalizing what was called unnatural sexual acts. So it wasn't actually targeting identity. I think it's really important that we understand that identity wasn't understood the same way back then. There wasn't an LGBTQ plus community. So it was targeted at any kind of sexual act that wasn't aimed at having children, really. So it didn't target who was doing it, it was targeting the act of sex. But the practical aspect of that was that you can't really police something as intimate as sex. So what it ended up becoming was a law that targeted couples and relationships that were different. So the law kind of evolved into becoming 
an anti-homosexuality law, even though the wording never said that. It's really important that I don't create this false idea that everything was fine in Dandy before colonialism. So prior to that, although there was stigma, there wasn't a uniform response to it. And I think that's where the toxic legacy of colonialism comes into play is it prevented the capacity for these different cultures, these different religions, these different communities to engage with different kinds of intimacy in, a, in an organic way. What that means in modern countries like Bangladesh is that after Britain left the Indian subcontinent in 1947, Bangladesh was part of Pakistan. So we became independent, not directly from Britain, we became independent from another South Asian country in 1971. So we have these layer on layer on layer of different levels of colonialism. So Section 377 was for a lot of people, it just turned into, well, homosexuality is a foreign concept. And we have a law, doesn't matter where it came from, that says homosexuality is wrong and therefore we'll keep that law. And a law that was actually very Victorian Christian in its implementation is now used by very strict Islamists in Bangladesh to say Islam, in our interpretation, says homosexuality is a sin. Therefore, we should keep this law. Thank you. That was a very clear explanation or kind of walking through of something that is extremely complicated. I just wanted to pick up on another element that you brought in there, which is that, of course, you also mentioned Islam and some of the teachings within Islam. And I know that you were brought up in a Muslim family. So could you talk to us a bit about what teachings there are in Islam on sexuality and how they impacted on your life growing up? So as with any other major religion, and certainly with any other major Abrahamic religion, Islam is not monolithic. We obviously have different interpretations like Sunni Islam, Shia Islam. I was raised in a Sunni household. Bangladesh is majority Sunni. The Islam I grew up with was a very interesting mix that a lot of Muslims, for example, in the Middle East probably wouldn't identify as Islam. And again, part of that is to do with the way Bangladesh became independent because we identified as Muslim during the breakup of the British colonial project, which is why we became part of Pakistan rather than becoming part of India. But beyond that initial identification, political Islam wasn't a major force in what is now Bangladesh. So the Islam I grew up with was kind of one that was mixing a lot of different traditions. So when I went to Muslim weddings, a lot of the ceremonies were actually picked up from Hinduism. And I did grow up at a time when the country was still identifying itself as secular. And to make this very clear, there's a Western understanding that secular means a rejection of religion from a national perspective, whereas from a South Asian understanding, secularism was an acceptance of all religions. But within that understanding, I was still told without any space for contradiction that homosexuality is a sin. I never went to any theological schooling. I don't know where in the Quran it says that, but I was also raised in a kind of culture where you don't really challenge adults. So when the adults said the Quran says homosexuality is illegal, you believed them. I now know that, of course, the references that they pull on 
similar to the Old Testament references in, in Christianity are with regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's the idea that sexual deviancy and sexual pleasure are sinful. And it's kind of tying in again with the idea that if you are not having sex for the purposes of having children, you're having sex for the purposes of pleasure and that self-pleasure is wrong. By the time I had moved first to India for those two years of schooling and then to the UK for my higher education... What was also happening in Bangladesh was a very strong right-wing Islamist revival, politically speaking. So we're seeing kind of an upsurge in very rigid interpretations of Islam, where it's not just things like homosexuality, but it's also things like music. It's also things like color and celebration, mixing traditions, in some cases even interreligious marriage. So what we see in Bangladesh really, and this is the kind of the reality on the ground now, is LGBTQ plus rights are part of a broader selection of rights that are at risk because there's a specific interpretation of Islam that doesn't like to be challenged. You know, as, as you were talking, I, I was really kind of struck by the point that you made about sort of knowing that homosexuality was sinful according to Islam but not really having the resources to critically respond to that because of not really knowing where specifically that came from in your religious texts or teachings or tradition. And I wonder how that makes you feel in terms of your relationship with your religion at the time and subsequently. At the time, I very firmly rejected religion and a large part of that was to do with me coming to terms with my sexuality and recognizing that that was an integral part of who I am and not a choice. But I think what a lot of people in Bangladesh struggle with is, is it's not just that you can't challenge authority, it's you don't know how to, because with the Quran, the original text is in Arabic. We don't speak or read Arabic fluently. We, we never did. But ironically, a lot of our adults who would tell us that homosexuality is a sin also didn't read the Quran in its, its original text. So what it really, really relied on ultimately were imams passing on teachings based on what they'd been told to people who, who accepted that as, as, as gospel and then passed that down. I don't recall challenging about homosexuality, but I did sometimes ask questions, particularly of my teachers, whenever they discuss Islam, it's like, oh, um, which part of the Quran? And, and never in a challenging way, I just remember just asking out of curiosity, oh, I wonder which part of the Quran says that. And they wouldn't be happy about me asking, but a lot of times their response would also be, I actually don't know, but it's taken as truth. And I didn't like that dogmatism of Islam, and that's what I left. But I also think that it's very different for me as someone who grew up in a Muslim-majority country where Islam is part of the system of suppression. And I say that very explicitly because I also know that that is not the case for LGBTQ plus Muslims in the UK because Islam is not the dominant religion here. And what I've seen a lot of with many of my friends whom I've made in the UK is their faith being something that's provided them a sense of community and safety in a way that I never associated with faith because for me it was what everyone was doing. And I think there's something about finding 
that safety and finding that space of solidarity with others when you're in a minority that Islam has offered for British LGBTQ plus Muslims that it wouldn't have offered for someone like me. But what it is also encouraging to see since my time here is the number of people who are challenging kind of those narratives, actually saying, is that actually in the Quran? Is that a translation? Is that a mistranslation? I always get very worried by any belief system that puts you into a box that you can't question. And I think that's what majoritarian religion, whether that's Islam in Bangladesh, whether that's Hinduism in India, whether that's evangelical Christianity in the US, if it's a majoritarian religion, that's what happens. And that's what worries me. Politics, power, history and belief. Each of these issues plays a significant part in shaping different views on sex and sexuality for different religious communities. Because of this, no one religion has a single view on whether they welcome or reject LGBTQ plus people. And equally, no individual queer experience within any faith group will ever be the same. One thing that does seem to be shared by both Christianity and Islam on issues like gay marriage and same-sex relationships is the potential within each religion for there to be clashes between modern life, ancient scriptural texts and long-standing religious traditions. I am better known as Benji Park and I'm a fashion influencer, but I also work in fashion as a consultant and I run a now a creative agency. Benji was brought up in the Orthodox Jewish world, another of the Abrahamic faiths. We talk about how he celebrates being gay and being Jewish. Faith for me, especially when it comes to Judaism, has increasingly as I get older and perhaps this is just sort of like the wiseness of age. Um, I say that though not being very old, but I think it becomes just an increasingly personal thing. You know, I'm not sure if it's a generational thing, if it's Gen Z and how we view faith, or if it's specifically that Judaism calls for quite a closed look of faith because it's not a proselytizing religion like Christianity or Islam that now I really only talk about faith when I'm dealing with myself or dealing with a rabbi or dealing with a close Jewish friend so I don't really think about my family that much anymore when it comes to faith I guess I guess I think of my version of Judaism which is a very you know strange slightly quirky slightly fashiony quite queer version of it you know for me the way I view my faith is that love, it always sounds quite strange, is really like the operating ideal and that the moralities within that, be that like kindness or honesty, are sort of my top operations. And because I work in an industry that traditionally is quite vapid and that has lots of issues in it, be it representation or, or the way we convey body image or the way we convey sexuality, it's something that really permeates into my work. I think probably sometimes to the detriment of my commercial success, and so as you're talking there about your faith, it seems to me that there's quite a lot of space for change, for fluidity, for yeah. your understanding of your own religious traditions to also, you know, work in today's world, which is rapidly changing in terms of social expectations and so on. What's your experience of thinking about change in relation to Orthodox Judaism in particular? I think... Judaism is very often viewed as a monolithic thing because it's quite a small faith in terms of there's only sort of like in the region of something tiny like 14 million Jews worldwide, which means for context, Bella Hadid has like three times more Instagram followers than there are worldwide Jews. I have a 
a great amount of respect for for Orthodox Jews and specifically within that fragment of Judaism, um, Hasidic Jews who are sort of more recognisable Jews because there is a great deal of tradition and understanding that is kept within those communities that have been faced with such austerity and persecution because they are so visibly Jewish. You know, I have friends who are Hasidic Jews. I'm relatively embraced with open arms in any synagogue, be it an Orthodox, conservative or, or the opera end of the spectrum that I embody, be it a very liberal and reform synagogue. By nature, Judaism has had to be a fluid religion. 3,000 years of the faith have basically existed in exile. So people have kind of had to get with it or move on. Um, and especially in the last sort of 70, 80 years post-Holocaust, I think the idea and growth of Judaism has been much more focused on community in a less exclusive capacity. You know, in my experience, Judaism seems to be flowing towards a view of just like general acceptance and general participation in modern normal society um, for Orthodox Jews. I hope that continues to be the case. Mm -hmm. And although we are kind of rightly talking about the diversity within Judaism, mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it'd be helpful for us to think about some kinds of broad collective thoughts. You know, what are the teachings and beliefs that are part of Orthodox Jewish life around sexuality? So sexuality is, is an interesting concept in, in specifically Orthodox Judaism, because I think it's important to frame the fact that the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. So there's similar teachings traditionally between someone like St. Augustine and Christian teachings, specifically Catholic teachings, and Orthodox Judaism. Although the books that accompany the Torah, uh, which are writings, mostly rabbinical writings that are in constant evolution, but the Talmud is the big one, um, those then have a whole nother group of sort of like authorized and codexed information on, on, on how one has sex. Now, sex within marriage is really like the go-to for Jews, Orthodox Jews. The point is that Judaism is a faith that whilst it doesn't proselytize, it inherently encourages reproduction. Now, where does that leave it for someone like me, who's obviously gay and my partner converted to Judaism? That's a really complicated thing. Will our children be Jewish? Well, that's kind of a personal decision for me to make and how I feel about my faith. My partner is happy for our children to be Jewish. Our rabbi is happy for my children to be Jewish. So that's how we operate within our very reform and quite liberal synagogue. There are orthodox um, synagogues, and I know rabbis who I've spoken to who would never consider my children Jewish, would consider all of my marriages illegitimate and all sex I have unnatural, not only because it's it's gay sex, but also because it's outside uh, marriage. Those are some really interesting points. And I think Leviticus, the text in Leviticus, which has been used to prohibit same-sex relationships by lots of religious communities, both Jewish and Christian, is one of the, you know, the big so-called kind of clubber texts that gets used to kind of challenge LGBT rights. What do we do with scriptural texts like that? How do we handle those in kind of religious settings? Is there space for change, for challenge? What's your kind of take on that? So homophobia within the big Abrahamic monotheistic religions is an important thing. I also think it's often really important to bookend which groups of faith we're talking about. When it comes to Judaism um, and Christianity, you can speak about Leviticus 2013. Basically, it's an abomination for a man to lie with another. 
And there are other points within Leviticus 18, 6 to 24, which basically details that sexual activity, be it familial or adultery or bestiality, is also banned. And, and people have found ways to, to interpret that to be anti-gay. I think as a religious person who lives their life freely, I just have the view that these are documents that were written thousands of years ago as guides for how to live life within those time frames. Homosexuality in that era, you know, deep in Israel and Jerusalem and places like that didn't necessarily make sense to the societies and early civilizations that they were building. They were focused on procreation, the expansion of empires, feeding into armies of soldiers, essentially. That is what the interest of those early settlements that would grow into heavily dedicated faith settlements were interested in. So homosexuality was something that, you know, was very much viewed as like, either a, a massive overindulgence or as something that just didn't make sense to, to these early growing societies. I think, you know, times have changed. So opinions change, just like the many of those holy scriptures also have passages which can be interpreted as highly sexist. We don't still hold those views about women. And these are things that people will come to recognition with as, as time moves on and people realise that scripture is a guide, not a iron fist. Yeah, it's really interesting. So that there's, a, there's an idea about revelation. There is something that is ongoing, I guess, uh, unfolding all the time, that it's something that kind of c- continues in relationship with God. Yeah. And in terms of your own kind of personal journey, how has your relationship to Orthodox Judaism changed because of your sexuality? I think it's extremely complicated. Judaism is, I would say, one of the most complicated faiths in terms of how it can be practiced and followed. I mean, when it comes to being gay and being Jewish, there would be plenty of Orthodox Jews who would say that I simply cannot be an Orthodox Jew. It is simply impossible for one to live a from Orthodox life and to have sex with a man or be in a relationship with a man at the same time or, you know, be a lesbian or be a trans individual. I just happen to simply think that they are wrong. And I don't think, to put it in very blunt terms, that a God that would endure the Holocaust for his people cares that I go home and cook dinner with my boyfriend. I just venture to guess that, you know, there are busier things going on in an omnipotent being's life. But that's just my personal view. And subsequently, I have a big belief that faith is, whilst it's something that can be shared in terms of Shabbat, and I have friends over for Shabbat, and because my partner's Chinese, I do like a kosher Shabbat where I make Chinese food. But I also have a a deep-seated belief that faith is a private thing, and that if my faith offends you, then that's fine. We don't have to talk about it particularly. And if my faith offends you and you're a Jew, then that's even more fine because you have a deep understanding of anti-Semitism and what discrimination looks like. Subsequently, you shouldn't be pushing me on this. I will live my life with respect and autonomy just as you should. I mean, um, Rabbi Samuel S. Cohen, who was a big leading sort of American 20th century, mid 20th century reform rabbi, said that God is not only cosmic, but they are also personal. And I think that's just the deep message for me, which is like, yes, there is this incredible faith and legacy and history and and a massive amount of persecution in Judaism that is 
important to convey and talk about. But ultimately, at the end of the day, one is simply a human with all of the difficulties that that comes with. And if you seek strength from faith, then feel free to have a personal relationship with that. I'm very relaxed when it comes to these sorts of things, which is why I teeter the line now between calling myself an Orthodox Jew and a Reformed Jew, because I don't know which one I am anymore, which is a very interesting concept. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Why is that? Where is the sort of distinction between those two identities falling? And what is it that makes it difficult to to be able to put yourself with one or the other? Yeah, so, you know, an Orthodox Jew is a Jew who adheres fully to the principles and practices of traditional Judaism, be that daily study of the Torah, daily synagogue attendance, if possible, strict observance of the Sabbath, religious festivals, holy days, and then the dietary laws, the kosher laws that come along with it, having a kosher kitchen. I observe Shabbat in a relatively laxed way. I attend synagogue as much as possible, though, throughout the week. I eat kosher as much as possible. But, you know, there are things within the Torah that I would disagree with, and I I don't choose to follow blindly, which sounds uh, dismissive, because I know a great amount of Orthodox Jews who follow the Torah, the the Hebrew Bible, to the absolute word, um, and who are wonderful, inclusive, intelligent people. But You know, I personally have disagreements with a great amount of views that are codified in the Torah. Subsequently, one starts to wonder whether it's more suited for me to be a Reformed Jew. I do wear a kippah and I do live a lot of Orthodox habits. I I live them in my day-to-day life, but I'm not sure whether the Orthodox community wants people like me particularly. Yeah, it's it's so complicated. But again, it comes down to the fact that Judaism is an inherently personal relationship. And the religious persuasion you feel most connected to is really what you can follow. And through faith, through the last, you know, thousands of years of Judaism, we have seen continuous splinters and reformations and changes and different ethnic groups follow different traditions. There's nothing to say that individual Jews can't do the same. I'm Holly Morse and you've been listening to World of Belief. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and be sure to check out our other episodes. Thanks to the School of Arts, Languages and Culture Social Responsibility Fund for supporting the project. This podcast was produced by Amanda Hancocks and this is a University of Manchester production.